Normally, uh, I would invite us all to stand again to hear the reading of the Word, but we did that already um, because we are starting a six-week series, or five-week series, sorry, in uh, the Lord's Prayer. So I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. And um, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, what we did this morning how we recited the prayer together, and then we're going to spend five weeks kind of going through the prayer's lines and talk about what we're actually asking God for as we pray the Lord's Prayer. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab the Pew Bible in front of you. We're going to be on page 859. And as always, if you have any questions as we go through this morning, you can text the uh, question number, and we'll take a look at those at the end. So, let's, uh, let's pray, and we'll get started. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, teaching us, being our teacher, Jesus. You, uh, you taught your first disciples to pray when they asked, and um, we have that as an example in your word, that we can learn how to pray by praying the words that you taught us. And I pray that as we consider what it looks like to interact with this prayer, as we work through the lines of this prayer and kind of get a deeper understanding of what uh, you are suggesting that we pray, uh, give us wisdom. Enlighten us by your Holy Spirit. Teach us, grow us. Uh, Make us people that are reliant on you that believe in your power and your coming kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. So there is a um, characteristic of the Protestant Reformation that's called Semper Reformanda. That's Latin. It means always reforming. And what the Protestant reformers did is they realize, they recognize that while Scripture is our highest authority, as the church does its thing over the course of years and decades and centuries, we just start doing stuff. And that it is wisdom to ask the question, why do we do the things that we are doing? And bring them back to the Scriptures and say, are we doing the things that the Scriptures want us to be doing, or are we just making stuff up? And if we're making stuff up, is that bad? Is it indifferent? Is it good? How should we look at those things? And that's what the the Protestant reformers saw themselves as doing because they came out of the medieval Catholic Church that had added a lot of stuff to the Christian faith that wasn't in the Scriptures, And some of it was actually really damaging to people. And so they just started asking questions like, why are we doing this? And they made changes. And they said, this isn't going to be the only time in history that the church is going to need to make changes. We're going to have to continue to ask the question, what are we doing and why are we doing it? And so in the spirit of Semper Reformanda, we get to the 1970s in America something called the Jesus Movement. 
The Jesus movement, and specifically the Calvary Chapel movement, which I am an heir of, many of you in this room have connections to Calvary Chapel in some way or another, did the same thing. The founders of the Jesus movement asked the question, how are we doing church in our context? And is it in line with the scriptures? Is it helpful? Is it good for people? Or are there some things that we should be tweaking? And this movement in the American church resulted in in churches that many of us are very familiar with, which which are evangelical churches, sometimes called low church traditions, churches that are um, informal. Because at the time, many churches were seen as ritualistic. People wore stuffy suits and spoke with... King James language, and there was austere organ music. And the founders of the Jesus movement said that, you know, there's people that are being prevented from meeting Jesus because these barriers that we've created for ourselves. These aren't things that we learn from the scriptures. These are things that we've just inherited. And so many churches switched from suits to Hawaiian shirts and from organs to rock music and uh, from complex liturgies to spontaneous prayer. And so we are, in this church, uh, the heirs of that movement. Obviously, I'm standing up here in in blue jeans and a t-shirt. Jackson played by himself this morning, but often we have a rock band. But the thing is, in in many ways, many of our churches, our church included, have just taken on the traditions that the Jesus movement started now 50 years ago. And this is just the way that we do church. And so I think it's important as Christians, and especially as church leaders, to ask the question, do we do the things that we do because this is how we've always done it? Or do we do these things because it's good for us? And so I've been thinking about prayer and scripture and our collective worship together on Sunday for a while. And, And I've come to the conclusion that we should begin to make a practice of collectively praying together specifically the Lord's Prayer, every week. So that's what we did this morning. And so for the next season at least, and maybe for the foreseeable future, we are going to gather on Sunday mornings. And the first thing that we're going to do is we are going to say the Lord's Prayer together. And so we're going to spend five weeks looking at the prayer, but before we do that, I want to talk about three reasons why I think it's a good idea that we do it in the first place. And the first reason is that Jesus told us to. Maybe that's the best reason and the only one we need, but in Luke 11, we read, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, whenever you pray, say, Father, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come. 
Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone in debt to us and do not bring us into temptation. Now that's Luke's version of the prayer, which is a little bit different than the one that we're reading in Matthew. But growing up, I was taught that the Lord's prayer is an example. It's it's a prayer that Jesus said, as you're crafting your own prayer, use this prayer as a guideline. And I think that's true, and I think that's helpful. But Jesus also says, this is a prayer you should actually pray. So why, and I I can't speak for everyone, but I can speak for myself, most of my Christian life, I've never actually prayed this prayer. Why is that? And I think it's because well-meaning teachers saw Christians in other traditions formalizing this prayer to the point that it lost its meaning. That, that you, just, you just prayed the prayer and you had the prayer memorized and you spat it out and it didn't have any impact on you. It was Maybe you, you, were, you were assigned a certain number of times you were supposed to pray the prayer. And so we said, you know what, let's not do that anymore. Because the Lord's Prayer has lost its meaning. Don't, don't treat the prayer that way. And At least for me, I was never taught to actually pray the Lord's Prayer. And I think that's a valid concern. I don't think we want to take Scripture and use it that way. I think we want to pray to the Lord in a way that's meaningful and impactful and authentic. But the solution to quit praying the prayer that Jesus actually said we should be praying that's a pretty big jump. I was a, um, I, I worked with the Salvation Army for a number of years, and, and their, one of their distinctives is they're non-sacramental, which means that they don't baptize people and they don't practice communion. And the reason that they don't do that is because back in the 1860s, when William and Catherine Booth were starting their movement, they would interact with Christians in London And William Booth would say, are you a Christian? Do you know Jesus? And people would say, well, yeah, I take communion at this church every week. Or I got baptized at this church when I was a kid. And he recognized that that these people didn't have a living relationship with Christ. They were relying on the fact that they took the communion meal or that they were baptized for their salvation. And so Booth said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to start this new movement. And in our movement, we're not going to baptize people. We're not going to do communion because we want to make an example of the fact that we come to Christ by grace through faith, and it's not through these rituals. And I understand that. But 150 years later, the Salvation Army has made that a foundation of their organization. And I love the Salvation Army. I think they do amazing work, and they're good Christian brothers and sisters. But They've really thrown the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to baptism and communion. And I think we run the risk of doing the same thing when we ignore the Lord's Prayer. Because I think Jesus actually means us to pray it. So that's the first reason. The second reason is I think um, pre-written prayer connects us to the church. 
So there's this, if, if, we, would, if we would call ourselves the low church, right, we're, we're informal, we, we play rock songs, there's, just, there's a lot of like um, spontaneous things going on. The high church would be a church maybe where the pastor wears robes, there's a lot of uh, formulaic liturgy, a lot of sitting up, or standing up and sitting down, and a lot of recitation, and, and there's a, a long, complex order. There's pre-written prayer. There's a book called the Book of Common Prayer, which is the book that the Anglican church uses to kind of organize all of its church. Our church would be considered maybe more authentic, more understandable, easier to get into. If you're not familiar with church, there's not a bunch of things that you don't understand going on. And the way that expresses itself in prayer is that prayer is spontaneous, that somebody just gets up here and they just kind of start talking to God, right? I mean, I just did it a few minutes ago. And there's two qualities this this communicates, because remember, everything that we do in our gathering says something about God. And in a high church tradition where there's a lot of formality and a a lot of beauty and order, it speaks of a God who's transcendent, who's otherworldly, who's bigger than us, who's untouchable in many ways. And that's true, right? God is those things. But in a low church experience, we communicate what's called the imminence of God, the closeness of God, that that Jesus is our brother and God is our father. And so in a high church, you might hear, Lord, we beseech thee on behalf of thy humble servants. And in a low church, you'll hear, hey, Papa, Daddy, Jesus, what's up, my Savior? Maybe not that. It's a very different way to interact with God. But the thing is, is we've created a culture many times in in the low church tradition in, in our country where when Jesus' disciples ask him to teach them to pray, his response is, well, just talk to God. But that's not his response in the scriptures. His response is a specific prayer. And there's value to utilizing prayers that have already been written, that have already been crafted to be theologically sound and appropriate for the occasion and meaningful. And Jesus gives us one of those prayers. There's literally hundreds more of them in the scriptures. The book of Psalms is 150 of them, and they're all over the place. And this is what the first Christians actually did in their worship gatherings. In Acts 2.42, we read, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. That's the Christian standard version that we usually read from. But the ESV says it a little differently. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. The prayers has the definite article, and it's plural, because the first Christians had a set of prayers that they would pray. See, they were, they were Jewish people. They were coming out of this. They weren't, they weren't abandoning their faith to become Christians. They were becoming completed Jews because their Messiah had come, and they had a rich history of pre-written prayer in their Scripture. And they prayed those prayers together regularly. If you've ever watched The Chosen, which I think is a great uh, show, it's one of the only Christian shows that I will recommend to people, 
because I think it's really well done. Um, Jesus and the disciples frequently are seen either waking up in the morning or going to bed at night and reciting prayers. And they're all reciting the same prayer because that's the rhythm of their lives, that they've learned these prayers from the scriptures and they're speaking to God by utilizing these pre-written prayers. Tish Warren writes, for most of church history, Christians understood prayer not primarily as a means of self-expression or an individual conversation with the divine, but as an inherited way of approaching God, a way to wade into the ongoing stream of the church's communion with him. And I like that because we've, we've incredibly individualized our faith. It's just my relationship with Jesus, which is true, and we don't want to diminish that, but it's also our relationship as God's people with the Lord. And that prayer can also be this communal experience that connects us to Christians from the past. So the, the historic prayers of the church are a treasure trove of wise words that we can pray maybe when we don't know what else to pray. And the Lord's Prayer, is, I would say, is the greatest of them all. And just a, a plug, if, for, if you don't know, we have a monthly prayer and worship night here on the, I think it's the last Thursday of the month, I forget. Um, but we spend about an hour and a half praying together and we go through a prayer liturgy. We have a book of pre-written prayers and some of them are scripture, some of them are prayers of the church from various centuries. There's 2,000 years of church history and we've selected some different prayers and we have opportunity to um, just pray our own prayers and you know, there's, a, there's still an acoustic guitar and we still sing praise and worship songs. We're not uh, super crazy, but uh, it's an opportunity to engage with the way the church engaged with God in the past. And I think it's really valuable. Third reason I think it's important to pray the Lord's Prayer is, is that we need to learn how to pray. The culture of prayer that we have where all prayer is spontaneous creates a couple of unfortunate side effects. And the first one is really bad public prayer. Have you ever... Uh, heard somebody pray, and may maybe in this church, I hope not, but where it's just like not true. Like, uh, we just thank you, Holy Spirit, for dying on the cross for us. Like, no, that's not true. Like, <laughs> and that's not how it works. That's that the Son died on the cross, the Spirit did not. And that's, that's not often done uh, in order to deceive. It's done on accident because people get nervous or maybe filler words. Are, are, are you somebody maybe that, that uses the word Lord all the time over and over again when you pray? Lord, we just, just thank you, Lord, for everything, Lord, that you do for us, Lord. And, and Lord, you're, Lord, you're just so good to us, Lord. And, and, and that, that sounds kind of prayerful, but you'd never talk to a person that way. John, we just, John, you're just such a great guy, John. And I, I'm just glad, John, that you're my friend, John. Like, that's weird. <laughs> Why? Because we get nervous. Because, hey, you're, you're standing upright. Why don't you pray? Like, uh, okay, uh, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. And so prayer is just not always that great. And then this leads to an unwillingness or an inability to pray. 
I know many of us, I, I talk to many of you who are like, I just don't know how to pray. I don't, I don't want to pray. There's a, there's a prayer circle and there's people praying and there's always some people and they're usually quieter people, shyer people. They're, I'm not praying out loud. I don't know what to pray. Mike Cosper writes in uh, the book Rhythms of Grace about Eugene Peterson. He says, Eugene Peterson, who's a pastor, described how church members would ask him to help them learn to pray. And he'd answer by describing a group that gathered weekly to do just that. And would they like to join? Inevitably, they'd say yes, and Peterson would invite them to their regular Sunday morning worship service. And the thing is, I find that very convicting because I'm confident that when we gather on Sundays, we learn to understand the gospel and the scriptures well. But are we learning how to pray? I'm not so sure, and I think we should change that. So why are we going to start praying the Lord's Prayer together? Well, first of all, I think Jesus tells us to. Second, I think it's something that connects us to the church in a way that reminds us that we are bigger than just this gathering. We have 2,000 years of history behind us. And thirdly, I think it will actually teach us to pray. So let's dive in to the text We're just taking one line, Matthew 6, 9, our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. So there's three words in here that are really going to shape our understanding of what it means to approach God in prayer. The word Father, the word name, and the word holy. So first off, Father. Jesus identifies the person that we are praying to as our Father. And the Jewish people have this understanding of God as our Father, our Creator, our Maker, the source of the people of God. The Old Testament uses the metaphor of Father about 15 times to describe God. But something happens in the New Testament. In the New Testament, by the time you just get through the four Gospels, God is called a Father 170 times. And so the the density of this title for God increases exponentially when Jesus comes on the scene. Because Jesus is, he begins to teach us about the closeness of God, that we are a family and that God is near to us. That's what fatherly language is supposed to communicate. And fatherly language in Scripture, that can be hard for some of us because we all have human fathers, and not all of our human fathers are great. I I talk to many people who are like, "I I can't approach God as father because my father was terrible. He was distant, or he was abusive, or he just wasn't there. But the reality to that statement is that If your experience of your human father is less than ideal, it's a clue that you understand fatherhood correctly. Because you are seeing a deficiency in your father, and the reality is the heavenly father fulfills those deficiencies. See, God doesn't call himself a father because he saw human fathers and said, yeah, I'm kind of like that. No, we have the idea of fathers as human beings because God is a father himself. He is the ultimate father, the perfect father, the good father. 
And when those of us who are privileged to be called fathers on earth mess up, we are not displaying the fatherness of God. We are displaying the fact that we don't live up to the fatherness of God. Paul says in Romans 8, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Abba is the intimate Aramaic way of saying father. First John 3, John says, see what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children. And we are. God is our Father. And this is where we start the prayer, right? We don't have to work up towards this. We don't have to prove anything to God to make him our father. We don't have to be good enough or do the right things or have any kind of manipulation to get him to be our father. He is already our father. We already exist as Christians in this relationship of closeness with God. How many of you have seen the movie Elf? Yeah, so in Elf, um, Buddy the Elf, who's um, uh, like a 40-year-old man, is, uh, finds out that he's been adopted by a man who lives in New York, and he leaves the North Pole to go find, or he was adopted by a man in the North Pole, and he, he leaves the North Pole to go find his birth father in New York. And he goes to meet his birth father and goes to the Empire State Building where he works, and he comes to his office, and he says, Dad! And his dad is kind of confused, and there's some, some miscommunication. And so then Buddy sings his dad a song. And he says, you're my dad. I love you. And it's super funny. But his dad doesn't think it's very funny, does he? His dad thinks it's a little weird because his dad is not ready for this relationship. He doesn't understand this relationship. But from Buddy's perspective, he knows what a father is and he enters into the relationship with his father assuming that he is loved and valued and accepted. And the whole rest of the movie is working through getting his dad to feel the same way. But we enter into relationship with God knowing that he is our father and he knows that we are his children and we are loved and accepted and valued in him. Jesus says in Matthew 7, ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Who among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Jesus says, for those of you that are fathers, overwhelmingly, you want good things for your children. And yes, there are exceptions, and people are broken and, and, and fallen in that way, but most of us have fathers deep down want good things for our children, and we go out of our way, we sacrifice to give them those things. And he says, if that lives in you, how much better is God? We know that God loves us because he adopted us as sons and daughters through Christ Jesus before we were born, right? The, the cross happened 2,000 years ago. The work of the gospel that affects our lives today was set into motion before time even began. 
And Jesus is the true son of the Father, and our connection to him through the cross makes us part of God's family. And so as we begin to pray this prayer, our Father in heaven who loves us is waiting for us to come and bring our heart to him. So what's the first thing that we ask in this prayer? Your name be honored as holy. What's God's name? Anybody? I see a hand. Jesus, that's a good answer. Yeah, that's one of God's names. That's right. Is there another name for God? Yahweh. Yes. Exodus chapter 3, Moses asked God, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? That's a good question. What should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the Israelites, the Lord, and do we have it? Yeah, whenever it's in all caps, that's the Hebrew word Yahweh. Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered in every generation. So over and over and over again in the Old Testament, when you read L-O-R-D, all caps, it's the Hebrew word Yahweh, which they leave untranslated for a long set of reasons that we won't get into. But the word Yahweh is very similar to the word I am. The the idea that God is the I am and God is Yahweh are very linguistically connected. And so what is God saying? He's the self-existent one. He's the creator of all things. He's the uncaused cause of the universe. And this is a big deal to Moses and the Israelites because the nations, they all had regional gods, Right? There's the God of the Canaanites and the God of the Hittites, the God of the Hivites and the Jebusites and the Egyptians. The Egyptians had dozens, maybe hundreds of gods, the God of, of the sun and the moon and the stars and the rivers and uh, the God of midwives and crocodiles and whatever else. Everybody had its own little God. And you would petition the God that you liked or the God that served you best. But when Moses meets this God in the middle of this bush that won't burn up, He asks a really good question, what is your name? And he says, I'm the God over everything. I'm the God that caused this whole universe to begin. I am the self-existent one. I am bigger than all the gods that you've ever interacted with in your past. And so then we move along in the story and the Israelites get redeemed out of Egypt by the power of Yahweh and they go out into the wilderness to the base of Mount Sinai and they're, they're brought into a covenant with Yahweh. They become his people and then God gives them the rules of the covenant, the way his people are meant to live their lives. And we get a couple commandments in to the third commandment and we read, Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God, because the Lord will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses his name. And we think that this command is about swearing. Like, don't say bad words. But that's not what this is saying. 
The Hebrew actually says, you shall not lift up or carry the name of Yahweh, your God, in vain. So the assumption is that the Israelites are already carrying the name of Yahweh, and they need to take that seriously. Carmen Imes, who specializes in the name of God and bearing the name of God, says, Yahweh is telling them not to misrepresent him among the nations. See, the Israelites have been called to be special people, separate people, set-apart people, and they're meant to draw all the other nations to Yahweh through their special relationship that they have with him. And when they act in ways that are out of alignment with his character, they bear his name in vain. We read it many times, but in Leviticus 22, it says, you are to keep my commandments and do them. I am Yahweh. You must not profane my holy name. I must be treated as holy among the Israelites. I am Yahweh who sets you apart. The one who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God, I am Yahweh. And this is why this commandment in the Ten Commandments is so close to the top of the list. Right? We have, don't have any other gods before me. That's number one. And then we have, don't make idols. That's number two. And then we have, don't say bad words. That doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? It's because it's not that. It's, don't misrepresent me among the nations. And there's this beautiful picture of this in the Old Testament in Exodus 28 talking about one of those weird parts in your Bible plan that you like read really fast and get bored with. It's the description of the high priest's outfit. You are to make a pure gold medallion and engrave it, and like the engraving of a seal, holy to Yahweh. Fasten it to a cord of blue yarn so that it can be placed on a turban. The medallion is to be on the front of the turban. So the high priest literally bears the name of Yahweh because on his hat, he has a little medallion that says Yahweh on it. And so when the high priest is doing his priestly work, all of the people can look at his uniform and it says Yahweh. And he is representing God in his role as the high priest. And we all instinctively understand this, I think. Uh, I was, we, we were refinancing our house a couple months ago. And um, I went online to get a bunch of you know, offers from different companies and it was terrible. But <laughs> one of the companies got back to me. This guy called me and he, he was uh, just a seasoned sales guy. He was super nice. He wanted to ask me about my family and where I lived and what I did for a living. And, you know, and he found out I was a pastor and they talked about his church and just like, you know, I was, was great. he did a really good job, like reeling me in. Uh, and then I, he, he, he said, you know what, uh, I, I'd really love to work with you. Here are the numbers that I want to offer you for this refinance. And I said, that's really great. I love that. Could you please email me the thing? Because they all have the same like form that they fill out. Because, you know, I'm just like getting offers right now and I need to go talk to my wife about it. And we're just comparing things. And he said, you know, what can I do to get this, to, to get this uh figured out right now before we get you off the phone. I said, well, you know, I'm just, I'm just really not in a position to do that. And, um, and uh, I just, I, I would, I'd just love to see the, the numbers in writing. And, I, and he goes, you know what? If you just put down a $500 deposit right now, uh, we can get this in process and uh, it'll be really great. Just trust me. And I said, I really appreciate everything that you're trying to do for me, but I just, I just can't do that right now. We're just, you know, trying to get multiple offers and, and figure it out. And this, this conversation went on way too long. 
to the point where he literally started yelling at me across the phone about how he was trying to get this deal and he had bills to pay and why won't I trust him and aren't I a Christian? And I finally had to say, you know what, sir, I'm sorry, but this phone call is over. And I hung up on him. And then he started texting me over and over and over again. And then he started emailing me like 20 or 30 times. And the only way I could get it to stop was I had to get on Twitter and call out the company in public. And then they direct messaged me and and put an end to it. But here's the thing. I don't remember that guy's name, but I could tell you the company he works for. I'm not going to. But that's what it means to bear the name, right? He bore the name of the company he worked for, and his treatment of me put a sour taste in my mouth, not for him, also for him, but specifically for the company that he works for. And so the command to not bear the name of Yahweh in vain is like that. When you go out into the world, when you interact among the nations, you have the name of Yahweh on your forehead and you are acting in a way that's representing me to the world. And then we get to the New Testament and Paul is well aware of this. And he says in Philippians 2, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider... Equality with God is something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, Roman, you got that right? Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Paul says the name, the name of the Lord is the same as Jesus. And so as Christians, we are literally Christ's ones. We bear the name of Jesus. And so when we pray the Lord's Prayer and ask God that his name be honored as holy, we're requesting that we would represent God well in the world. And this is a challenge for us. It's a challenge for us individually. It's a challenge for the church holistically because the name Christian isn't very highly thought of in the world. And sometimes that's because of genuine differences in worldview. There are things that we believe are true about the world that are totally opposed to the things that some other people believe, and and that's fine, and we should be able to interact with people with different views. But oftentimes it's because people see Christians not acting much like Jesus. See, when we live our lives in a way that does not demonstrate what Jesus is like to the world, we are taking the Lord's name in vain. And when we pray this prayer, we're asking God to help us not to do that. But we say, your name be honored as holy. And this is the last word we're going to look at this morning. 
In Isaiah 6, we read, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robes filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. So God is already holy. God is already holy. So why are we praying that his name would be honored as holy? And this is one of the places that I like the modern translations of the scriptures better than just the traditional, if you, if you grew up learning the Lord's Prayer saying, hallowed be thy name. Um, that's an old way of saying the same thing. But in the, to a modern ear, it sounds like, God, we want you to be holy. God is already holy. We're not praying that God would be holy. We're praying that God's holiness would be recognized by us and by others through us. So what is holiness? Holiness means being set apart, being other, being different. I've told some of you this story before, but when I was growing up, we had uh, this big wooden hutch. Do people have hutches anymore? I don't have, we don't have a hutch. We have a credenza. That's better, I think. Uh, But we had this hutch, and it was wooden, and it had glass and drawers and stuff. And in the hutch, there was a box. It was a wooden box that had a latch. And you opened the latch, and in the latch, there was this velvet-lined case. And in the velvet-lined case, there was cutlery, forks and knives and spoons, and they were golden. And they were holy, Why? Because they only came out twice a year. They came out on Thanksgiving and Christmas. And you didn't put them in the dishwasher either. You hand washed them, and then they got put back in the case and back in the hutch until the next time you use them. That's what it means to be holy. It means to be set apart, to be special. And this is what God is like. God is set apart. God is special. God is holy. God is different than we are. And Maybe that sounds obvious. Of course, God is different than we are, but we don't obviously think that. We tend to want to remake God into our own image. We want to believe that God has the same thoughts that we do, likes the same things that we do, cares about the same things that we do. Oftentimes, we just uncritically adopt the idea that if I feel a certain way about something, then God must agree with me. Tim Keller says, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. And that's a real danger if we don't think carefully about what the scriptures say and what they teach us and how our own intuitions are often motivated by our sinfulness. So how should we define the otherness of God? This is how God defines it. In Exodus 34, Yahweh came down in a cloud, stood with Moses there and proclaimed his name, Yahweh. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. 
So how does God define his own holiness? By being overwhelmingly gracious, compassionate, forgiving, loving, and perfectly just. And we don't like that. We want, we want the love of God for ourselves and the justice of God for our enemies. We want to reshape God's perfect holy character into something that we think is a little more palatable, a little more like us. When we want to pursue sin, we say things like, well, God is love, and I want to do this thing, and God just wants me to be happy. But then when we are mistreated, we hope that God will smite our enemies. But God doesn't fit the boxes we make for him. He is not for ordinary use. He is holy. He is different. He is other. Wesley Hill writes, the God of the Bible is beyond our categories of comprehension. But the thing is, God's holiness is actually a good thing for us. If we are honest with ourselves, we need a God who is holy. We need a God who is different from us because we are broken. Comprehending God is outside of our ability and so is fixing the problem that we find ourselves in. I do a lot of work on my computer and um, I'm a pretty advanced computer user, but there's still a lot of things that I don't know. And so many times when my computer's not working, I uh, go on the internet to find a solution. And the, sometimes the solution is to kind of go around the back door of the computer through what's called a command prompt. And if you've ever seen it or if you've used old computers, it's just like a black window with a cursor and you type, you know, codes and slashes and numbers and stuff and you push enter and stuff happens. And so I've got a problem. My computer won't do the thing that I want it to do. And I found somebody else with this problem and they'll say, oh, type this phrase into the console and it'll fix your problem. So I'll open up the console because I know how to do that and I'll copy the phrase and I'll paste it in and I'll push enter and it will fix my problem. I have no idea what that phrase was. I have no idea what it did. I just know that it fixed my problem. And see, I don't have the time or the ability to even comprehend any of that. And I know some of you who are more um, computer savvy than I am would be able to tell me about it, but I don't want you to. I just want my computer to work. And so I have to trust in something, trust in a process that I cannot fully comprehend, that I cannot fully understand. And for some of us, and, and maybe, maybe you're here and you're, you're not a Christian this morning, and you, maybe you've said, like, I, if I can figure God out, if, if he will answer all of my questions to my satisfaction, if I can understand all of this, then I will trust him. But the thing is, you will never figure him out. You are not smart enough. You are not good enough. You're not big enough to figure him out. You just need to trust him. And so we want to find solutions that we can understand. And so we grasp for things that can't possibly help us. Jackie Hill Perry says, in our quest for an invented God, we're always compelled to worship someone or something that exists just like we do with the futile expectation that they'll succeed in being able to give us what is beyond their reach. See, only a God that is beyond us is big enough to fix us. 
And this is what Jesus did. God, the second person of the Trinity, holy, holy, holy from all eternity, becomes a human being and walks our path. But he's better than us. He doesn't fall into sin like we do. And it's from this place of superiority, of otherness, that Jesus can forgive us by becoming sin and dying in our place. This is why we need him to be different. We need him to be other. We need him to be holy. And part of the good news that we are sharing with the world is that the world needs to know that he is holy, that he is different, that he is other, that he is big enough and great enough to fix their problems by trusting in him and believing in the gospel. So this is the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. We are coming into an already established relationship of love and asking the immortal, eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing creator of the universe for the ability to represent him well in the world. In Derwin Gray's book on the Lord's Prayer, he says that this is a prayer that God will answer. Sometimes we struggle with praying for things that God doesn't seem to answer. If you want God to answer your prayers, figure out the kinds of things that he would be excited to answer. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy as a prayer that God will answer. So we should be people that pray that prayer. So, That's line one. We'll do four more weeks to get through the prayer together. I know there was a question, and I'm going to figure out if I can read it. I still haven't figured out how to use this phone. Okay, here we go. What a verse six. Are we in Exodus here? <laughs> Trying to figure out where we're at here. Yeah, Exodus six or Exodus thirty-four, verse six. What amazing self-descriptive words God uses: gracious, compassionate, and loving. Yeah, yeah. That's there's a there's a tendency to think that like God in the New Testament is really kind and loving and gracious, and God in the Old Testament is really mean and, and angry all the time, but that's just not true. There is so much beautiful, tender care that Yahweh shows in the Old Testament. Here's another one. What are your thoughts on, or do you recommend following the acronym ACTS when praying, standing for adoration, confession, thankfulness, and supplication? Yeah, I think that's great. Um, There's a lot of uh, frameworks. There's one that I learned called TAXI, which is Thanksgiving, Adoration, Confession, Supplication, and Intercession. Um, There's probably a thousand different prayer systems that you can use. And and I think the prayer system that you should use is the one that you actually do. Um, So if that helps you, then that's great. Um, I think the great thing about systems like that is it reminds us that um, prayer is more than just asking God for stuff. Right? Spending time in, um, like, set a timer for five minutes and say, for five minutes, I'm just going to pray prayers of adoration. God, you are so good. You are so faithful and loving. Your creation is magnificent and glorious. Like, see if you can keep that up for five minutes. It's harder than it, you did think. It, it's because we don't often 
practice that. We, we practice God, the car's broken and there's not enough money and the family's crazy, help me. You know, like those are the things that we go to, uh, but there's so much more that we could be praying. Uh, let's see. What are your thoughts on approaching Jesus in prayer and relationship as our friend? Big emphasis on this in Christian circles and in music. Balanced with holiness, yes, but any other thoughts? What do scriptures say in regard to this? P.S. Love the analogy of bearing God's name. Um, what a friend we have in Jesus is a cool song. I like that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think... I think there needs to be balance, right? Because if we lose the holiness of God and just think of Jesus as our buddy and our bro, like we miss a lot. But if we don't recognize that Jesus, there's an intimacy to Jesus' relationship with us, we also miss a lot. Um, I don't have the text in front of me, but I think it's in John where Jesus calls his disciples friends. You're no longer my servants, but you are my friends. Um, uh, the master doesn't tell his servants what he's doing, but I'm telling you what I'm doing because you're my friends. Jesus initiates that relationship, right? Like Jesus says, you are my friends. Um, I think that says something about how we should approach that. It is our privilege to be called the friend of the king, but that doesn't diminish that we are the subjects of the king, first and foremost. And so I think... The question says balance. I think that's important. If you've lost all sense of holiness in your relationship with God, if you've, if you've lost all sense of fear and trembling before the mighty power of the Lord in your relationship with God, then you need to, you need to course correct a little bit. Um, but if, on the other hand, you have no concept of the friendship of God, of the love of God, of the, of the closeness of God, then, then maybe you need to lean more into that direction because Jesus invites us to be his friends. Okay. I think that's all of them. We're going to take good questions, you guys. Thank you for asking them. We're going to take communion, as we always do. Um, I love, whenever I, whenever I look at Isaiah 6, I, I love to point out that um, Isaiah sees Yahweh on the throne, and here's the cry of the seraphim, holy, holy, holy. He sees God and, and he doesn't go, hey, buddy, you know, he doesn't do that. He falls apart. He is undone. He says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. It's life-changing and earth-shattering for Isaiah to see the holiness of the Lord. He recognized he is a sinner. And we need to be people that when we contemplate the holiness of God, we are undone because we recognize that we are sinners. And when the seraphim takes a coal from the altar, the altar of sacrifice, which we don't completely understand why there's a whole like um, temple system in heaven that the earthly temple was designed around, but there is. And, and the seraphim takes an altar or a coal from the altar and he takes it over to Isaiah and the coal comes from a burn-up sacrifice, and the, he places the coal on the lips of Isaiah, and his sins are forgiven, and he is made ready to be deployed on mission for God. And 
when we think about the communion meal, we recognize that Jesus is our sacrificial lamb. He is, he is representative of the sacrifice that was burned up on the altar for the forgiveness of sin. And Jesus on the cross, he takes away the sins of the world through his death and his resurrection. And his sacrifice happened once for all time, right? The book of Hebrews reminds us. But we remember it through the bread and the cup that similarly to Isaiah's circumstance, we take to our lips. We take the bread and the cup into our mouths. And his sacrifice, as remember it, cleanses us and makes us holy. It prepares us to be his ambassadors in the world. And so we do this every week as we gather to commemorate the Lord's death. And so as we worship together, I invite you to come up and take the bread and the cup, the wine or the juice, to take it back to your seat, to remember the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord, just to praise Him in these moments for His love for you, His sacrifice on the cross, His holiness, the fact that He is set apart and other and that He is the only one with the ability to save. And that if you're a Christian here this morning, He has saved you by the blood of His cross. And I'd invite you to to sit or stand, to come to the front and kneel on the prayer rugs if you would like as we worship. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.